Chapter 3 of Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by P.K. Soloco. Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881 by James B. Gillett. Chapter 3. I joined the Rangers. The fame of the Texas Rangers had, of course, become common knowledge among all Texans. Their deeds of adventure and their open, attractive life along the frontier had always appealed to me, and I had long cherished the desire to enlist in the battalion. But the enlistment, as announced by Captain Roberts, would not be made until June 1, 1875, and I reached Menardville early in March. I had intended going on to join Mr. Frank's outfit, but, as explained in a previous chapter, I hired out to Mr. Ellis until I could enlist in Captain Roberts' company. About the middle of May, 1875, Joe Franks had worked back over into Menard County. I wished to see my old friends in his outfit, and so went over to meet them. While there, I mentioned that I was going to join the Rangers. A cowboy named Norman Rogers, who was working for Mr. Franks, said he would also like to join, so we decided we would go over to Captain Roberts together and see if we couldn't get him to recruit us into his company. Rogers and I rode over to the ranger camp beyond Menardville. Neither of us had been in such a camp before, nor did we know anyone in the company. Of the first ranger we met, we inquired where we could find the captain. His tent was pointed out to us, and we went toward it. Jim, said Norman as we approached the tent, you will have to do the talking. Captain Roberts met us as we came up and invited us to be seated. I told him at once that we had come to enlist as rangers. He asked us our names, where we were working, and finally inquired if we had anyone that would recommend us. We had not thought of references, but told him that probably Mr. Franks or Mr. Ellis would stand for us, as they were well-known and prominent cattlemen for whom we had worked. Captain Roberts looked straight at me and said, Did you say your name was Gillett? Yes, Jim Gillett, I replied. He then asked me where I was born, and I told him at Austin, Texas. Are you the son of James S. Gillett, who was adjunct general under Governor Sam Houston? I told him I was. I have often heard my father, Buck Roberts, speak of your father, he said in a friendly tone. Captain Roberts then asked us what kind of horses we had, telling us that a ranger was required to have a good mount, for each man was allowed to have only one horse, which had to be a good one, that could be ridden every day for a month if necessary. I told the captain I had two good pony mares. He burst out laughing and said a mare was not allowed in the service. He then told us to go and see what kind of a mount we could get, come back and let him inspect the animals. The captain never once said he wouldn't list us, but as the interview was now over, and he had not refused us, we went back to camp feeling very hopeful we would soon be rangers. I secured a big black pony and Norman a gray one, not so large as mine, but a much prettier horse. We returned to the ranger camp a few days later mounted on these ponies. The captain looked them over and said they were rather small, but that he would accept them, and told us to be at his camp by May 31st to be sworn into the service. We left camp that evening all puffed up at the prospect of being Texas Rangers. The last day of May arrived. 
Norman Rogers and myself, with many other recruits we had never seen before, were at the ranger camp. On June 1st, 1875, at 10 o'clock, we were formed in line, mounted, and the oath of allegiance to the state of Texas was read to us by Captain Roberts. When we had all signed this oath, we were pronounced Texas Rangers. This was probably the happiest day of my life, for I had realized one of my greatest ambitions and was now a member of the most famous and efficient body of mounted police in the world. Immediately upon being sworn in, the men were divided into messes, ten men to the mess, and issued ten days' rations by the orderly sergeant. These rations consisted of flour, bacon, coffee, sugar beans, rice, pepper, salt, and soda. No potatoes, syrup, or lard was furnished, and each man had to supply his own cooking utensils. To shorten our bread, we used bacon grease. Beef was sometimes supplied the men, but wild game was so plentiful that but little other meat was required. Furthermore, each recruit was furnished a Sharps carbine, 50 caliber, and 145 Colt's pistol. These arms were charged to each ranger, their cost to be deducted from our first pay. Our salary of $40 per month was paid in quarterly installments. The state also supplied provender for the horses. Though a ranger was forced to supply his own mount, the state undertook to pay for the animal if it were killed or lost in an Indian fight. To establish the impartial value of our animals, Captain Roberts marched us into Menardville and asked three citizens of the town to place a value on each man's mount. This was done, and I was highly gratified when Old Coley, my mount, was appraised at $125. This formality over, the company was moved from Little Saline to Camp Los Morris, five miles southwest of Menardville, Texas. We were now ready to begin scouting for Indians. As is usual under the same circumstances, the new recruits came in for their share of pranks and mishaps. One raw rookie in my mess, fired with love of economy, undertook to cook ten days' rations for the whole mess at one time. He put a quantity of rice on the fire. Soon it began to boil and swell, and that surprised ranger found his rice increasing in unheard proportions. He filled every cooking vessel in the mess with half-cooked rice, and still the kettle continued to overflow. In desperation, he finally began to pour it on the ground. Even then, he had enough rice cooked to supply the entire company. Another recruit, anxious to test his new weapons, obtained Captain Robert's permission to go hunting. He had not gone far from camp before he began firing at some squirrels. One of his bullets struck the limb of a tree and whizzed close to camp. This gave an old ranger an idea. He hastened after the hunter and gravely arrested him, declaring that the glancing bullet had struck a man in camp and that Captain Roberts had ordered the careless hunter's arrest. The veteran brought in a pale and badly scared recruit. One of the favorite diversions of the old rangers was to make a newcomer believe that the state furnished the rangers with socks and start him off to the captain's tent to demand his share of free hosiery. The captain took these pranks in good part and assured the crestfallen applicant that the rangers were only playing a joke on him, while his tormentors enjoyed his discomfiture from a safe distance. When they had run out of jokes, the rangers settled down to the regular routine of camp. Each morning, the orderly sergeant had roll call, at which time he always detailed six or eight men with a non-commissioned officer to take charge of the rangers' horses and the pack mules until relieved the following morning by a new guard. The guard was mounted and armed and drove the loose stock out to graze. 
The horses were never taken far from camp for fear of being attacked by Indians and also to keep them near at hand in case they were needed quickly. The rangers not on guard spent their time as they wished when not on duty, but no man could leave the camp without the captain's permission. The boys played such games as appealed to them, horseshoe pitching and cards being the favorite diversions. As long as it did not interfere with the man's duty as a ranger, Captain Roberts permitted pony racing and some exciting contests took place between rival horse owners. And hunting and fishing were always available for woods and streams were stocked with game and fish. I soon had cause to congratulate myself on my enlistment in Company D for I found D.W. Roberts the best of company commanders. At the time I joined his command he was just 35 years of age very slender and perhaps a little over six feet tall. His beard and hair were dark auburn. He was always looking neatly dressed and was kind and affable in manner, looking more like the dean of an eastern college than the great captain he was. Captain Roberts was a fine horseman and a good shot with both pistol and rifle. He was also a fine violinist and often played for the boys. He had been raised on the frontier and had such a great reputation as an Indian fighter that the 14th legislature of Texas presented him with a fine Winchester rifle for his gallantry in fighting the Redskins. The captain had made a close study of the habits and actions of the Indians and had become such an authority that their life was an open book to him. This of course gave him a great advantage in following and fighting them, and under his able leadership Company D became famous. There was not a man in the company that did not consider it a compliment to be detailed on a scout with Captain Roberts. In the latter part of the summer or early fall of 1875, Captain Roberts visited Colorado County, Texas and returned with the bride, a Miss Lou Conway. Mrs. Roberts was a very refined and elegant lady and soon adapted herself to the customs of the camp. She was with her husband on the San Saba River during the winter of 1875-76 to 76, and soon became as popular with the company as Captain Roberts himself. Most people consider the life of the Texas Ranger hard and dangerous, but I never found it so. In the first place, the Ranger was always with a body of well-armed men, more than a match for any enemy that might be met. Then, there was an element of danger about it that appealed to any red-blooded American. All of western Texas was a real frontier then, and for one who loved nature and God's own creation, it was a paradise on earth. The hills and valleys were teeming with deer and turkey, thousands of buffalo and antelope were on the plains, and the streams all over Texas were full of fish. Bee caves and bee trees abounded. In the springtime, one could travel for hundreds of miles on a bed of flowers. Oh, how I wished I had the power to describe the wonderful country as I saw it then. How happy I am now in my old age that I am a native Texan and saw the grand frontier before it was marred by the hand of man. The Lipans, Kickapoos, Comanches, and Kiowa Indians used to time their raids so as to reach the Texas settlements during the light of the moon so they would have moonlight nights in which to steal horses and make their getaway before they could be discovered. By morning, when their thefts became known, they would have a long lead ahead and be well out on their way into the plains and mountains. The captains of the rangers' companies knew of this Indian habit and accordingly kept scouts constantly in the field during the period of the raids. The redskins coming in from the plains where water was scarce generally took the near cut to the hard waters of the Colorado, Concho, San Saba, Llanos, Guadalupe, 
and Nuessis rivers. By maintaining scouts or near the heads of these streams, the rangers frequently caught parties of Indians going in or coming out of the settlements and destroyed them or recaptured the stolen stock. The first light moon in June, Captain Roberts ordered a detail of 15 men in command of Sergeant James B. Hawkins to make a 10-day scout toward the headwaters of the North Lano River. He was to select a secluded spot near old abandoned Fort Territ and make camp there. Each morning, a scout of one or two men would be sent out 10 or 15 miles south and another party a like distance toward the north to hunt for Indian trails. The main body of rangers, keeping carefully concealed, was in readiness to take up an Indian trail at a moment's notice should one be found by the scouts. One morning, Sergeant Hawkins ordered me to travel south from camp to the head draws of the South Lano and watch for pony tracks. Suppose the Indians get me, I asked laughingly as I mounted my pony. It's your business to keep a sharp lookout and not let them catch you, he replied. However, though I watched very carefully, I could find no pony tracks or Indian trails. We had with us on this scout Mike Lynch, a pure Irishman. Though he was old and gray-headed, he was a good ranger and had much need of wit. One morning it was Uncle Mac's turn to go on scout duty, but in a few hours he was seen coming into camp with his horse Possum on the jump. He reported a fresh Indian trail about ten miles north of our camp. When asked how many pony tracks he had counted, Lynch at once declared he had counted seventeen and thought there were more. As the Indians usually came in on foot or with as few ponies as they could get by on until they could steal others, Sergeant Hawkins suspected the tracks Lynch had seen were those of Mustangs. The excited scout declared vehemently that the tracks were not those of wild horses, but of Indians. The sergeant was just as positive that no Indian party was responsible for the trail, and the two had quite a heated argument over the tracks. But how do you know it is an Indian trail, demanded Hawkins. Because I know I know, cried out Lynch in a loud voice. That settled it. Horses were saddled and mules packed as quickly as possible, and the rangers marched over to the suspicious trail. When Sergeant Hawkins examined the trail, he soon discovered that the sign had been made by Mustangs, but could not convince the hard-headed Irishman until he followed the trail two or three miles and showed him the Mustang herd quietly grazing under some shade trees. Uncle Mike did not mention Indian Trail any more on that scout. Though we did not find any trails or Indians, the scouting party killed two black bear, several deer, and about 15 wild turkey. Early in September 1875, Captain Roberts again ordered Sergeant Hawkins to take 15 men and make a 10-day scout on the Brady Mountains. To my great joy, I was detailed on this expedition. When near the head of Scalp Creek, Menard County, on our return trip, the sergeant told the boys to keep a sharp lookout for a deer, as we would reach the San Saba by noon and would camp on that stream for the night. We had not traveled far before Ed Syker killed a nice little spike buck. We strapped him on one of the pack mules, and when we arrived at the river, we came upon a flock of half-grown wild turkeys. Bill Clements leaped from his horse and killed six of them. We then camped hobbled and sidelined our horses and put a strong guard with them. While some of the boys were gathering wood for our fire, they found an old elm stump ten to twelve feet high with bees going in at the top. One of the rangers rode over to Roof Wind's ranch and borrowed an axe and a bucket. When he returned, we cut the tree and got more honey than sixteen men could eat. 
besides filling the bucket with nice sealed honey, which we gave to Miss Wynne in return for the use of her axe. Then, after dinner, out came fishing tackle, and using venison for bait, we caught more catfish than the entire crowd could eat. Hunting conditions in those days were ideal. I have known a single scout to kill three or four bear on a single trip. The companies to the north of us were never out of buffalo meat in season. Then in the fall, one could gather enough pecans as fine as ever grew in half a day to last the company a month. I've seen hundreds of bushels of nuts go to waste because there was no one to gather them. Besides, they sold on the market for 50 cents per bushel. No wonder that a boy that loved the woods and nature was charmed and fascinated with the life of the Texas Ranger. It was a picnic for me from start to finish, and the six years I was with the battalion were the happiest and most interesting of my life. But hunting and fishing and vacation scouts were not the sole duties of a ranger. Pleasure was abundant, but there were times when all these were laid aside. For the game guns and the fishing rod, we exchanged our carbines and our six-shooters and engaged in hazardous expeditions after marauding redskins. I was soon to see this latter aspect of ranger life, for in the latter part of August 1875, I became a real ranger and entered upon the real work of our battalion, that of protecting the frontier against the roving Indians and engaging them in regular pitched battles. End of chapter 3